Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. We are really, really late this week. I've had all kinds of technical problems. A trip to Amsterdam and uh, a live podcast recording episode that I did with Ellen Alien, which is going to be going out next week. And um, yeah, just gremlins, which prevented me from getting my shit together to get this episode out on time. But here it is. Finally, it's Thursday, Thursday evening. Unfortunately, but better late than never. What can you do? What can you do? But I'm very happy to say that this week on the show, we have Elijah, who is a really, really interesting guy who originally came out of the grime scene. I mean, some of you may remember his work with Elijah and Skillium, but he's also done various things in the industry. Like he's been an artist manager, he's been a promoter, all kinds of different stuff. But most recently, he's been doing this thing called Yellow Squares Project, which you may have seen on socials because it's been everywhere on socials. And basically, he's just kind of trying to help people understand the business, basically, the industry, which is kind of similar to what we're trying to do on this show. So it was a complete no-brainer to get him on to talk about that project and to talk about the issues that he talks about in the Yellow Squares thing. And so we do that, but we also talk about the history of grime, which is something we haven't done too much on the show previously and something that I really want to get into. So it's great to be able to delve into that with someone who was there at the time, someone who was very young, in fact, in the very early stages of grime, but was certainly participating and then participated more directly with his Butters label and various other stuff. So yes, this is a textbook episode textbook in terms of our intentions anyway and i'm really happy with the way the conversation went I think you're going to enjoy it just before we get started a reminder that we're on patreon patreon.com slash official if you want to support the show directly we'd be extraordinarily grateful if you did that all the info is on there if not 
then leave us a review or a rating. That's also fine. That's also a good way to help us here. So hit the five star button wherever you're listening to this. Follow the Spotify playlist, which contains much of the music that we talk about as well as all the episodes. So loads of grime in there this week. And join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. So without further delay, here is Elijah. Elijah, welcome to the show. How you doing, sir? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, great to have you on. I um, have been following you in your various different guises or various different activities that you've been doing over the last, well, 15 years or more, right? And you've done all kinds of things in the industry. And it's kind of resolved itself into uh, what you're doing now which is super interesting and actually sort of like fairly well it's kind of adjacent to what I've been trying to do with this show really which is to I guess um, educate sort of younger artists or younger kind of aspirational artists coming through so just to get started can you just give me an overview of what you're trying to achieve with the yellow square thing and maybe just a quick one about how it came about in the first place yeah so I've just I guess since I've been doing music of I've never worked for a music company before. Um, didn't have much experience coming in. All I kind of was, was a raver. Someone that was buying records, um, trying to work things out. So I was just publicly asking questions as I was going in different forms. So before that was on a blog and then on forums and then then Twitter. And then now, the I guess the, not the final form, but a form I'm doing it in now is uh, these kind of things like yellow squares that will kind of look like post-it notes on Instagram, um, which I guess now is... 15 years of experience and then still asking questions like well, you know what is going on and I, uh, with young people that I'm talking to working with asking questions um, the industry's kind of been prof- professionalized in a way that it wasn't when I started so I guess people have expectations of what they think this thing is going to be and and sometimes <laughs> my writing is like okay maybe you're assuming people know what they're doing but um, most of us don't so yeah that's kind of kind of where where it's at right now and I do it like most days so maybe Monday to Thursday every week um so there's just different questions mm. I'm asking and I don't I'm not sure if I'm even trying to achieve anything but it feels just like conversations we would have had in clubs or um in the queue or at a bar or when you were seeing people more regularly but um people don't go out as much as they used to and we've kind of been isolated for the last couple of years so feels like the right um, forum to, to do that in now. Yeah, I mean, you've been raising some really interesting issues on it and I've got a whole list of them that I want to talk to you about. I mean, you just actually just mentioned one there, which is the professionalization of the industry, I guess of the, the kind of dance scene anyway, the kind of electronic, quote unquote, underground electronic side of the industry, right? And that's something we've talked about on the show before. And um <sighs> So, 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 what's your what's your general take on on the effect that that's had? Because I mean, we're going to talk about your label and your involvement in grime definitely later in the discussion. But like, how has that like um, like phenomenon of, of professionalization like changed things in a, in a practical way? Do you think for new people coming through? I think people look at it as a viable career option. They go to university, uh, maybe study uh, music technology or music production. Um, they come out. Uh, maybe go to a few panels, DJ courses and 
experience what it's like and then apply the same logic that they would approach any career like apply for jobs or kind of put their 10,000 hours in and then expect like results like if you yeah if I release an EP on a famous label then I should get gigs like you know there's like a kind of inputs outputs type mentality um and maybe socially as well that we've kind of told people you know if you put the work in then you'll get a result or believe in yourself and all this kind of stuff which um in you know art is you know so many different reasons why that doesn't really work um and if i guess if we told anyone they can do anything if they put their mind to it it kind of leaves us in a bit of a state as a society um so maybe it's a bit deeper than just simple professionalization of the industry but those a combination of those things just leaves a lot of uh, people coming in a bit confused they're like oh i've done all the things i've made the songs i've been a good dj i've got a boiler room got a feature on resident advisor why am i not getting shows now and it doesn't really work like that sure i mean that that concept of of hard work is a really interesting one isn't it because i mean you're absolutely right that the kind of prevailing narrative that people get taught is that you know, hard work will sort of inevitably lead to good results, right? And and obviously that's not true, but that doesn't change the fact that hard work is still a sort of prerequisite for success, but it's not a guarantee of it, right? And those two things are, um, well, I, I say it's a prerequisite. It's, it's, it's not true for 100% of people, but I think at a general level to be successful, you you, you do have to work hard. But, but like you said, and like you've said, we said in, in, the, in the talk that you gave, which is on YouTube, which I'll link to in the show notes, you know, and, and you've said it on your, your socials too, that like it isn't a guarantee. And there's plenty of examples of people who work extremely hard and don't get, um, I mean, as you put it, there's no, single mothers don't get, there's not an award for that, right? <laughs> which is a great example. But um, a kind of general theme of pretty much all of your output in this, in this area has been like the, the need to sort of embrace change, basically embrace new models and not be caught up in like kind of legacy processes and the past, things which may have been um, effective in the past, essentially. And um, one of the things that we've talked about on the show on various episodes going back to the start actually has been the, the tendency of, of dance music and electronic music generally to be quite small C conservative in its outlook. And I think that's sort of what you're getting at when you talk about these, um, you know, kind of legacy processes. So tell me at a general level how you see that that kind of phenomenon of small C conservatism in in electronic music. I think when people are looking back, they don't realise how few people were doing it compared to now. So those ideas were good if, you know, 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 people weren't doing it. And um, that like balance hasn't been addressed yet. So we've obviously democratized production, democratized DJ and democratized the distribution of everything. So anyone can do it, which is cool. Um, but it also means that less people are going to have um, a career or something that resembles, you know, a career, you know, make money or whatever it's going to be. So I, I think we, I guess we get stuck in a period of time where things did work. And we're trying to find that sweet spot again. But the technology has moved on to a point where it doesn't actually favor any of those behaviors anymore. 
So there's, <laughs> again, it's like this, this thing is like, there's probably three things going on. It's like a social change, then the technology, the access change. So there's more people doing it, then the mentality towards it is different. And then you've got the massive technological change before when we were putting out records, we weren't competing with pop, pop stars. We were just doing things on our small level and we had space and time to do that um, in our own, in our own ecosystems. But now when we put out um, material, we have to be on the same platform as Beyonce. And for most people, we're not going to cut through with our ideas. Even, even if you do have like a sizable audience, you can even see on Instagram or something, you might have a few thousand followers, but it only reaches 50 of them. And of those 50, how many click through to the link in bio, that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's really hard. And this, I'm trying to, that really dial into to not necessarily just what's next, but trying to stretch the many versions of what can be next for me, myself, like things that I work on. And hopefully people that are looking in and to see, oh, actually, if I even get the idea of approaching these things in the same way that people did before, um, yeah, this is not going to be a career thing for me. This is going to be a hobby, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely experienced this too with trying to um, assist artists on on the label on, on Hot Flush with you know getting started and building their careers and building the sort of awareness of what they're doing because you know, a, a large part of the challenge now is just getting heard, getting noticed, you know, a, a, as you referred to. And I mean, <laughs> like the um, the example that I was going to use was the sort of dichotomy of like wanting on the one hand to be released on vinyl which is the ultimate legacy format and the ultimate kind of you know dance music kind of totem versus the reluctance to 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 use tiktok in a serious way right and and those two things like just just say it all to me because i mean tiktok is just an incredible thing and i i count myself i mean i'm i'm guilty also of 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 being um, sort of reluctant to, to to take it seriously and and to, to jump in, but like just just the ubiquity of it now. And if you you know are serious about building a a young audience, then you really have to be on that platform. You have to take it seriously. And and I you know I've I've been through stages of thinking of oh, well you know, maybe it's too late now. Maybe maybe there's a there's another thing going to come around the corner. But it just keeps building momentum. But like that versus vinyl, and you've talked a, a fair bit about the economics of of vinyl is just crazy to me because I mean I know as a as a someone who's run a label for nearly 20 years now that you know selling 300 copies of a of a record now is, is extremely challenging you never hear people say that though people say like selling 300 records is extremely challenging or what the um, financial implications are for your business or for the artist like no one really says it. it it just it's one of these things that's just quietly happened and I mean when I started um it was like in the height of dubstep vinyl selling and i remember the people that were selling records in a generation before were like you're selling a thousand records that's a joke <laughs> and then 500 exactly. records like you lot are jokers like when for us it was like cool 500 records this is kind of cool especially if we were selling them direct and then it became 300 and we're like uh, okay this is probably okay still <laughs> and then now um just because they've got so much more expensive to produce when I, you know, when when I'm doing statements to the artists, they're confused as well. They're like, "Hold on, you sold out of the record, and you, you don't have uh, thousands of pounds to pay me." I'm like, "No, 
No, you're still in debt, probably, if you pre- if you press 300, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, with the TikTok versus vinyl thing, a lot of that is fear, and I guess what I'm trying to do with the project too is kind of extinguish my own fears of you know putting myself out there, social media, or just like kind of leading by example here. Like, I, I try not to say, well, do something that I wouldn't do. I'm experimenting with the platforms myself, like using them in different ways, and I haven't fully like approached TikTok properly yet and that's something that I do want to get my head into but um maybe vinyl was that medium where you could be it was quite distant like you would send it to a record shop and then someone would pick it up and you didn't know who it was and all of that stuff whereas TikTok and Instagram and Twitter like people tell you what they think of you or don't tell you what they think of you and it can feel a bit overwhelming for for people which I understand but ultimately if you want to build something in this um, era, then that's something that you're going to have to engage with. And I think in this can be positive. It's not just negative by default. Um, I think people can approach it in whatever way is comfortable for them. Um, But yeah, again, like you said, if they don't want to engage with that medium, then they're going to have to find something else that, that works for them. And I've yet to find someone building a, you know, audience of, you know, young music lovers or people that are interested in following something outside of uh, TikTok, Instagram or YouTube. Yeah, I mean, what you just said there about your kind of personal involvement in this stuff is um, it's a kind of feature of what you've been doing. Like you're very upfront with the way that you, your journey is is part of this. And like you say, you're kind of sharing your own kind of interactions with these platforms and your own kind of like navigation through it and I think maybe that's um I mean like you know your your kind of work here has really resonated with a lot of people and I think I think that's at least partly because you are willing to kind of be like show your your kind of personal experience and be quite actually quite vulnerable like obviously like visibly vulnerable about, about you know your kind of experiences and and as I said like the way you I've been trying to navigate through a career in the same way that everyone else is. Was that is that a conscious decision you made, or is that just how it has come out? I, I don't know. I just that just feels comfortable for me. I don't, I don't really know an alternative. Um, I work with artists really closely, and if I'm asking them to do something or we're talking about doing something, then having a little proof of concept myself has been like, hey, look, you know, I tried this. Um, this seems to work or work or connect or this, this is why this didn't mm-hmm. work, especially because I'm trying different things every day. It's like a, it's like mm-hmm. a, yeah, it's like a test. And sometimes, um, you know, I've spoken to social media managers and press people and this thing. And, and I'm like, I can tell you what's effective from, you know, the dance floor to the Instagram, <laughs> to the record sales. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting all the data points. So if someone says, well, you know, the PR person got you a feature in Mixmag and Resident Advisor and this thing. I'm like, well, cool. That like, didn't sell any records or it didn't result in any bookings. They did their job, but it, it wasn't effective in producing other results. Whereas I can say, well, I did, I don't know, say like the YouTube, um, starting the YouTube channel, for example. Um, I know that, okay, that brought certain opportunities and maybe gave me other ideas that I wouldn't have had if I didn't have that thing going so I probably wouldn't have done the live lecture if I didn't have YouTube 
and then I wouldn't have done mm-hmm. the tune if I didn't have YouTube. So there's kind of, because I'm experimenting with it actively, um, it, yeah, it just it snowballs. And maybe because this is one fun thing about this now is that people can see the plays, right? And they're not crazy amounts. I think if it, it would be like not charming if it was 100,000 a video or something crazy, they're like low amounts. It doesn't, it doesn't stop me from like continuing, right? So um, mm-hmm. when, and especially with things like YouTube and um, with Twitter, I had to start from zero. So people that have been following from the beginning, they were like, well, I saw your first video on YouTube or because it was only a couple months ago or I've seen um, like, yeah, I just released a song on Spotify, you know, just under my, my, my name, Elijah, and it had zero monthly listeners. Cool. Like I'm, you see me starting from zero. So even if it gets to like a, a thousand or something, it's like, oh, it's not completely out of reach. So I can stop, you know, I think too often we're too, looking at what the biggest person is getting and then going, wow, that's too far. I'm not even going to try. Well, I'm out here doing stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's it's leading by example, right? I think is 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 what you're, what you're doing in a really positive way. And I think... You know, that resonates with people, you know, like people starting out, you know, have to have, like you said, realistic goals. And if someone who they respect is in a, um, you know, in a, in a position which they can realistically aspire to, then I think that really, it really helps, you know, it really helps. But, um, okay, so let me just return to these kind of legacy formats because there were basically four that I want to talk about. We've talked about vinyl. The other three were radio, press, so magazines, basically and labels and these are all, these are three things that you've talked about so i just want to go through these things in in turn so let's just do radio first i mean pirate radio really really key part of underground music particularly i mean in, in the uk and particularly london right so if you're talking about i mean you originally came up with grime and i'm I'm a dubstep person originally, but I mean, I was, you know, grew up listening to Pirates and then listened to Jungle and listened to Garage and it was just such a crucial part of the development of that music, you know, almost as important as the raves, arguably. But, I mean, for, for obvious reasons, radio has declined. So can you just tell me how you see radio now? I mean, if you were, you know, what would you say to a young up-and-coming artist who maybe aspires to be on radio or whatever, what do you say to them about it and what's the importance of it? A lot of the DJs I speak to about radio, they do radio because they think that's the right thing to do in terms of getting bookings or building a profile. And that's the wrong way to approach radio if you want to do it. I think you have to do it with the approach of just enjoying it for what it is. It's just, you know, sharing music, mixing, maybe connecting with friends, you know, like when you invite a friend on for a guest mix and you get to hang out, maybe have some dinner and a beer and something, you know I mean? It not be like a kind of, corporate side of your presentation basically it's just something that you do that you enjoy mm. and that alone is completely fine but what i kind of push back against is the i guess the strategy of radio in people's presentation so it'll be like oh i do a radio show i'm on nts or i'm on rinse or whatever and now i'm a higher profile dj it's like well who's well if you want to bring stats into it who's listening how many people are listening when you're playing live how many people are listening afterwards on Mixcloud or whatever it's going to be, then what, what, how does that connect to people that want to see you in terms of buying tickets? It doesn't. There isn't like a through line there. And my problem as well with it is a lot of people building profiles of giving away other people's music. 
if you just boil it down to that. There's enough access points mm. for um, music discovery now that you don't have to give away someone's full tune on the radio. You can point them to where it'd be best to support them or listen to it. The idea that a DJ playing your song is uh, a support or promotion is, is, is at this stage of the game is, is nonsense, really. And um, Hannah said, let me let me jump in there and I'll, and ask you about that because that's really interesting. I mean, obviously, when you get player played on BBC, you get a decent performance royalty. But like, obviously, you're you're completely right to say that you know, these smaller radio stations are not, and obviously on pirate, you certainly don't get any kind of thing like that. And one of the other quotes that I pulled out of yours regarding radio was that was quote, "Why have we decided that labour is free on radio?" And and basically, I think those two things sort of are adjacent to each other in the sense that there should be money associated with this. I mean, artists should be getting paid in some respects. Like a DJ should get paid for playing on radio, really. And and the artist whose music is getting played should get paid. And my question is always, um, when these when these issues come up, is like, okay, so where is this money going to come from, right? And you know, the story of radio in the last 20 years has been just disruption really for for obvious reasons because of the internet at a broad level but tell me tell me how you see those two things okay well i'll I'll reverse engineer i'll say well if if there is no i guess money in the ecosystem to pay anyone then why are we doing it why are we organizing this way because it's not sustainable so you'll see radio stations doing fundraisers and join our membership and do this or hold on what what am I joining the membership for? Is it to support artists? If I want to support artists, I'll buy the record. What is the infrastructure that I'm paying for? Is it for DJs to hang out in, in Dalston? Is it for what, like what, what um, are you paying for? Um, people want to fight me about yep. Spotify and Apple music, what they pay out, but what does radio pay out? Or what does a community radio pay out? And everyone's going to say, Oh, well, it's community. It's different. There's no difference. Like rinse FM was a community and it, paid or had a tangible benefit for the people that had their music played on there at that time and um, were playing at those raves and you know it built many ecosystems so that was the benefit whereas if you know whatever setup people are doing now doesn't have tangible benefits and it's more philosophical then I'm sure like one person question it is not a problem like I don't uh, it's again this is not me saying that no one should do it I'm just questioning it and generally when the pushback I get is these kind of, oh, it's community. I was like, what does that mean? Like, isn't, you know, going to a club community, isn't buying, you know, label um, ecosystem, you know, know, 10 artists or five artists or three artists, or isn't a band a community? Like, how do you, how do you disseminate and go, radio is the only way we should organize as electronic music producers and DJs. Like, when did that happen? It's just like, it's just silly. And again, this comes down to scale, right? Before there was Rinse FM and then NTS and then then like, you know, hundreds of these other ones started across the world and it's a kind of winner take all position once you put the idea on the internet. So I don't know how many of these local, super local community stations are gonna pop up or do anything for the artists that are playing on them. And it just feels like a misallocation of resources. Like those imagine all of the energy put into a radio studio just put into a recording studio and those records being put out and it generating, you know, small 
little uh, royalties for those artists and developing them as musicians rather than, you know, replaying something that already existed or, you know, building something completely unsustainable. I'm like really passionate about this because um, I see thousands of hours of content put up on the internet every day. I see DJs, maybe, you know, they'll put their flyer for their radio show on Instagram with no music, no context, just a picture of them and the time they're playing. And then maybe a week or so later, a list of songs on a text thing and going, yeah, it's up. Listen. I'm like, how is that engaging? How is that helping, you know, the 40 or so artists that you've played on your show? Like it doesn't, it doesn't have any tangible benefit for anyone. And um, I, I really want people to really rethink or think broadly about how they can have a positive impact on the music that they're sharing and playing and how they can really benefit the artists that they quote unquote support. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this is um, really quite challenging to people's existing sort of perception of how things should work. Right. And I'm not surprised that you've got a pushback about this kind of stuff. I mean, particularly with um, like when you kind of bring the streaming services into it, I mean, I've actually compared streaming to radio on the show before and um for example with editorial playlists actually they work in a pretty similar way to how djs on commercial radio work but despite the fact that uh, you know headlining payback rates for streaming do seem low like i mean it's something and people do make a living out well some people do make a living out of streaming so okay that's radio i'm keen to uh not get too bogged down in any one of these. So let's move on to magazines and press generally. Because again, like the music press and the dance music press in particular, in the kind of, say, the formative period of like the the kind of 90s and especially like looking at the late 90s, like the music press was just a huge thing and they were selling tons and tons of magazines and Mix Mag and, and DJ Mag and all the rest of it were, you know, just huge they were hugely important in the scene, actually, for music discovery and, you know, just this, you know, the kind of, I guess, the setting of the culture. But, you know, commonly to all forms of print and media, they've declined massively. And online magazines had a kind of brief period, but I think it's fair to say that they have declined too. But I think people and artists generally still attach quite a lot of importance and probably too much importance to those things so what do you think about that stuff yeah i mean what is the incentive for someone to become a music journalist today and instead of becoming a dj like you know what even if you're a writer you know you can learn how to produce now on youtube you can learn how to dj on youtube and the incentives of if you crack djing are going to be larger than if you crack a piece on ra so for a young person coming through that you know even if they asked me, I'd say probably go that way and you get closer to the music, you could kind of have a different understanding of what this is going to be. So, and they, they, I guess these things actively tell you how the the writing industry and the press industry is collapsing. Why would a young person go into it? So you're not kind of, I'm not saying that you're not going to get the best writers, but people are not going to focus on that as the main, the main thing that they do anymore. And um, it's reflective in the kind of quality of output and the diversity of thought in that space. Um, Today, 
there's enough platforms for music discovery purely because we've got streaming services, you've got radio, you've got um, YouTube, endless content. So you don't need an intermediate thing to get to those things. And then I guess with magazines, their their incentive, their business model has changed to a point where it's like they need brands and you to be the product now whereas before they had sales to to, to back their ideas yep. so they yep. they can't be an antagonist to artists they can't say anything negative about anyone or they can't really be challenging in the space in a way that um they could have been before which is again it's like reflective in reflected in output and um yeah i don't, I don't think it's not that i don't think they're important i just think they just are going to be a less important thing going forward um and people connect seem to connect better with people right rather than brands so when someone says resident advisor said this i'm like resident advisor didn't say anything it was a writer that was posted onto resident advisor and this is me sure. I, like i did a guest edit for them this year and i'm like it's not like i'm dissing that website or or the people involved that's nothing there's nothing wrong with it but it's like i just attached words to people i don't care where it gets posted and the idea today especially this long into what i'm doing um that i would give a stronger weighting to someone's voice because it's on a particular website is nonsense the same way if someone writes about um something that i have a very large understanding of but it's on the guardian i don't care it's the guard like it's not because it's the, <laughs> it, oh it's on the guardian so now i should take their opinion more seriously it's like no maybe I know about that more than them. So I don't need to, to, to wait their opinion because they've got it on a particular website. Okay. So basically, I mean, I, I absolutely hear what you're, what you're saying. And I think it's sort of a reflection of the sort of decline of the credibility of those media institutions. Right. So I think previously, um, up until fairly recently, I would say, um, like a media platform, whether it's a website or a newspaper or whatever, did confer an extra degree of credibility on people who were writing in it, right? And I think that was probably quite useful for people, you know, because it um, it conferred an element of, I think, trust. And if you don't trust what is being written and if you don't have, um, like, reliable sources of information that you can... Um, base your kind of view of the world upon then things can get quite sticky and I think like I think we've seen this in politics I think we've seen it in various areas of society and that breakdown of trust in institutions I mean it's, it's more than just the media but I mean I think it, the media is a particularly good example of it so um, I don't know what the question is but, <laughs> but do you have any observation? I had a tweet the other day it's like you know if, if, if they believe in it they'll write about it for free right well, that's, that's that's really funny because I mean I I have said something very similar on the show, which was that you know comparing it to musicians, right? And and if musicians said, oh well, if I don't get paid as much, then my quality of output is going to go down. Like the average music journalist would not like that from a musician, right? <laughs> they would push back extraordinarily hard against that. But that's essentially what's happened in the press, right? And and maybe what like long term, the people that are like the, some of the smartest minds, the greatest writers, the, the greatest thinkers, the greatest um, kind of orators of the space. They just go and do it somewhere else. 
that's just what I mean about their kind of incentives. Like, why would you write for a music magazine when you can go and write television or go and write films or go and write with an artist yeah. or, or go and uh, start a label or go and start a night, you know? So like my, my generation was like a blogger generation that turned into labels, that turned into parties, that turned into artists. And now you just start with the label, you start with the party, you start with the idea. And then maybe the writing comes last. You know what I'm saying? So um, the music, yep. music journalism is all around us. It is what people share. Like it is the conversation that's happening on Twitter, but the publications are like the, maybe the final form of those, this, of that discourse. And which I do think is helpful for, to aggregate um, the sentiment of the, the space, the industry, the scenes. Um, but I don't think it's mm-hmm. the first point where a, a discussion is generally going to start from in 2022. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, because you're right to say that, um, you know, the, the conversation is just that much wider now and you can and it's much more vi- visible. Right. Because as, as you said, it's like it's, it's constantly happening. It's constantly um, visible through socials. And then if there is a sort of like if, it, if it's an efficient uh, music magazine now, then it would be to like accurately like report those conversations right and put them into a way that put them into a form that can be like easily understood i think and i think that's maybe what reporting should be i hadn't actually thought about it like that before but i think i think that's quite a good way of thinking about it yeah and the kind of people that you would want their voices to be amplified would be the people that are making and doing it and living it so um obviously someone can curate that for people but ultimately if someone is talking about house music in Detroit <laughs> I would want to like listen to I don't know Moody Man or something mm. <laughs> I, not necessarily because you can read his feed I don't know if he has Twitter but like just as an example and the same way if he was going to listen like this happened in the I guess the rise of crime it's like well what do you want to do do you want to like listen to or read someone that is writing about something that they're not immersed in or part of or like having that your perspective on the inside or do you want to read about someone read someone's writing of their perspective from an outside like what which one do you want you can have both but generally people are going to go and pick um the you know the insider point of view um yeah mm. yeah i think there is still a kind of perception that that as you said, sort of in, inside a point of view is somehow more valuable. And maybe in some respects or in some instances, maybe it is. I mean, there's obviously, I mean, knowledge is, it is valuable, right? But, but it's not the be all and end all. And, you know, insider knowledge is not necessarily the same thing as, you know, sort of experience in a different way, right? Um, okay, but you mentioned labels there and uh, that's something that we need to talk about because I mean you you are a a veteran of running a label um I'm fairly sure um I read that you started Butters with basically zero previous experience is that correct yeah that's right we were outside didn't it we were, we were going to we were buying records like we were going to raves like what more experience did sure. you need like it, yeah. if if I was right. working at Warner or something, it would have probably been like not so helpful. <laughs> this was exactly the same with me when I started Hot Flush, right? So I, I, I kind of had a, some rudimentary knowledge of the kind of landscape. I knew I knew I needed a scene, but I didn't know what MCPS was, <laughs> you know. So, um, but okay. So, but the the quote 
um, that I pulled out was, um, quote, working with DIY labels has changed. And essentially, what do DIY labels or, or any labels, frankly, what do they offer an artist now? Um, I mean, just things are so highly variant, but a lot of people maybe will send a high profile artist a demo and a, a high profile artist might say, hey, I love this. Can I release it on my label? And then they take 50% cut of that song for eternity. Okay, well, there's a power imbalance there. And there was a time when, like you're saying about pressing records and maybe access that we had versus everyone else, where that was maybe worth that sacrifice. But today, where we're on the same internet and we're on, you know, Instagram, same way, and maybe that person that's a bit further ahead doesn't have as much competitive advantage as you think. Is it worth someone giving away 50% of their royalties forever maybe not and on an ethical level if you know that okay well i'm not like adding that much value then apart from my name or you know my distribution service that's going to put it on to spotify for them like it it feels like a very expensive sacrifice for artists coming through and how do they build their thing under that ecosystem like if 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 they give let's say whatever, someone comes to me and wants to release a song and then it makes, um, and all I do is like whatever, slap my logo on it, put it out and obviously promote it and make some noise about it. But then it makes £10,000, for example. And then I give them five. Imagine if they had the 10, what they would do next. They might be able to to move out of their parents' house. They might be able to, you know, hire a studio, might be able to put out their own record next time. The difference is so vast, especially with not a lot of money. Um, and I don't think people really consider that. So I guess the reason why I kind of moved, so I've, I've kind of wrapped up as the label is because the artists that we came up with and, and helped work on their records together, there was a point where that's, where I, that's what I felt that we were doing. So we moved more to like a management type, arrangement so um so with swindle and flavor d and uh, djq and royalty we were like no like we're gonna work on putting out the records yourself and under your brand and under like that focus and that that basically changed our relationship and um meant that we had another shot at doing things in a different way and i think if we stayed in the original dynamic that we had as far as from 2010 then the label would have been finished um within a few years because it wouldn't have been sustainable for the the creatives putting in to to the label whereas um because we helped them build their own ecosystems they actually became their own star in a different way but we you know me and skillium uh, my partner we actually worked on the backside of that whereas a lot of the other side a lot of other people that did had similar operations um they would have other management say like if someone was signed to whatever label they would have another manager and another agent and another this and another that and then it just divided the pie even smaller but because mm. we just kept it in-house basically um that gave them or that helped like elongate their careers because they were able to reinvest quickly and um yeah it, it, it that was the difference between um surviving into another decade basically yeah i mean so i think every new artist needs some form of help right and that can come in various forms and the traditional model of 
booking agent, manager, and record label is pretty expensive, right? <laughs> Quite a lot of your bottom line is disappearing there. And I think definitely the, the, the most the most kind of tenuous one of those three is definitely the label, right? Because I think having a good manager and, and with a caveat that there are plenty of not good managers out there and having a having no manager is better than having a bad manager. But I think um, if you have a really good manager, then that's that adds a huge amount of value. And like you said, like the, the kind of, that the platforms exist now and the infrastructure exists now so, so you can release your records if you have the expertise without a label if you know how to do it and if you know which levers to pull as it were and I think that a booking agents are still crucial like I think there's no getting around that one just because of the way that live live industry works but also having someone to negotiate money on your behalf and I suppose you could include a manager in, in that essentially to fulfill that function but for me like of those three things like the label seems to be the most that's the the kind of low hanging fruit right if you want to get more of your non-existent bottom line (laughs) it's it's hard I think like people collaborating Mm. with people is good like I don't think I think people should release on different labels and and have that conversation like when people come to you and want to release music I think that's a good like experience a process for people to go through and like understanding the ways different people work but what's what I'm yep. more like pushing back on is long-term deals because the world is changing so fast. Yeah. Yeah. Like people in deals pre-TikTok today. Can you imagine mm-hmm. trying to approach <laughs> releasing an album or releasing singles or releasing anything, you know, pre-pandemic, pre-TikTok, pre, you know, this era that we live in now compared to, you know, four years ago. If you signed a deal in 2018, it should be like null and void at this point. <laughs> it's it's good. <laughs> and it, for both sides, it's like, it, it's not saying, oh, just in favor of the artist. I'm like, well, even for the label, it's like, damn, like it was a different world. And um, a lot of the DMs I get on Instagram are, are young people, going, oh, we don't mean young people, anyone just going, hey, I've got this like offer. This, this looks good. And this might be my only chance. This is what everyone always says. Only chance to, to really crack this thing. Yeah. Do you think I should sign it? And, when when you you hear think words like only chance and this might be my moment, that's when people make bad decisions, you know, and it's scary. It is scary. It's very easy to be in that mindset, and there are certainly moments in a in a career w- which are key, right? And there are moments where you have to grasp the nettle, but you never really know which which moments those are, and often it's only in hindsight that you really appreciate that. And I mean, sometimes it is signing a deal right it's um it's an extremely difficult thing to call and i think like the you know the, the concept of having good advice and having a good amount of knowledge which is i think you know a big part of why what you're doing is so valuable like it's 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 so so important and you know so many artists young kids trying to make it in music just don't have that knowledge right and so many mistakes are made and so many people are taken advantage of for that reason right exactly and Usually people are making these comparisons of when uh you say like a rapper signed a deal or some I don't know, jazz musician or something like that from previous music industry. But before they were getting like advances and something that would given them like some short term stability. So there was a time when, you know, a dance music producer might have offered a deal and they they say, Look, hey man, like we'll give you a hundred grand up front and for 
Like for yeah, anyone sure. really that had never seen any money before, again, that's the difference between moving out. It's the difference between maybe changing your life situation drastically. Maybe you've earned no money for five years and then someone just bundles a whole bunch of stuff on you. It's going to change your decisions that you're making. But now t- people are like, hey, there's no money, <laughs> but here's a here's a lifetime deal. I'm like, okay, well then. And then also still feeling that pressure. Like, oh, well, if I don't take this deal with whatever label, then where else am I even going to get an opportunity? This person believes in me and this, you know, they've supported my work and, you know, it can get a bit, um, yeah, the power dynamic can be a bit off. And hopefully, um, again, I'm not, I'm not saying that to, 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 again, put label versus artist because we're all in the same, we're all trying to do the same thing effectively. Usually, It's not one person trying to rip um, someone off usually. Um, it's just everyone trying to make sure they're, the efforts are balanced because um, I, you know, I speak to people that run labels all the time, and they're like, even on the projects that we do really well on, the time versus <laughs> you know resources and money that we put into it is still still probably like a still probably an L by any business like normal business metric. Yeah, if you break it down per hour, it doesn't look good, right? <laughs> exactly. Like usually, like success means like even greater commitment. So like if you have a pop in tune, you're like, hmm, maybe we should spend a few monies on some videos and then you spend money on a video and it doesn't impact the plays or get anything bigger. You just spend more money for no reason. Or, you know, you get something to a certain level and then you think, oh, maybe we could take this to the next level with, again, usually more more spending or more time commitment and then it doesn't actually have the output result either. So it, it's a really it's a really tricky line to, to to kind of toe or whatever, or whatever the saying is. Sure. I mean, do you think that, um, do you think that there is a, like a standard piece of advice for a new artist or an emerging artist now? Because obviously it used to be, you, I mean, you had to get signed. I mean, do you, do you think that, that the default should be try and do it yourself first now? Has it gone that far? Or do you think it's still very much a case of like... I think it's project by project. Just... Just taking and mm. taking in what you're actually trying to do with each um, piece of work, or at least a piece of like a commitment for a period of time. Um, that's usually short, you know, a year, two years, or eighteen months, or something like that. Um, so I don't think everyone should do everything themselves. So the industry would be even more chaos, um, and like it would just not like there's things that could just be done done better if it's done by someone that's doing it as a pro. Um, and you just learn from yeah. all the different experiences. I think maybe being locked into one scenario um, means that you only get used to doing certain, certain certain things, certain ways or certain formulas and certain, oh, we, we usually announce tunes on a Monday at six o'clock and uh, we usually do a guest mix right, on yeah. our radio show and then we do it. And then, then you get you get patterned into the way of doing it. And even for your audience, um, you see this with... My, my DJ friends are like, hey man, really excited to release my new single on Friday. I'm like, who isn't excited to release their new single on Friday? <laughs> it's just like one of these, you know, the cliche thing. Hey man. And you know, when we laugh at like, they say like the EDM DJs when they're on stage or like Tomorrowland or something going, hey man, this one's my new single. Put your hands up in the air. It's like, well, we're, we're all doing the same thing on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly like this is so similar and it's just like the only difference is the style of music right <laughs> i see that all the time yeah that's right 
Okay, right. Next one I had on my list. This is an interesting one. So the uh, the yellow square just said open salary. And you were talking about basically making your income public, which is something I think most people would be fairly reluctant to do for various different reasons. I think like we have a, I think maybe it's, it's definitely a British thing. I mean, I think it's 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 common across like many cultures, but I think particularly in Britain, it's seen as being sort of rude to ask someone how much they earn. So tell me, tell me what's behind this, and tell me what you think the benefits would be of doing it. All right, there's a, there's a few layers. So one is I, I do a lot of work that isn't just like connected to my value or or this thing that people have attached. Like I guess. You see this in the DJ world where like, oh, I'm a thousand pound DJ now. I'm a three thousand pound DJ or I'm a 10 grand DJ. So they won't do anything beneath that. Mm -hmm. Don't chat to me, chat to my agent, chat to my manager. It's like, (laughs) hold on, hold on, slow down. What do you want to do? Just if you break it down, like if you say, all right, cool. I want to play, say like, if you want to just be a festival DJ, fine, put your hands up in the air, great. But if you break down, like say like across a year, maybe you want to play like a couple hundred, you know, not or hundred shows, for example. Some of those would be like little tiny basement clubs. Some of those would be festivals. Some of those would be back to backs with friends. Some of those would be, you know, like streams, maybe boiler room type things. Like, and all of those are so financially, like, variant that it'd be good to see why you would choose one thing over another, right? So you might go to a city, and the best club is the 200 cap spot. It's not the 1,000 cap spot or the people that you want to work with work in that venue. You yeah. can't charge five grand in a two, 200 cap venue. You, if you go to sure. wherever, Mannheim or something, like, and you get 500 euros because you love playing that club and you want to go there and go to Mannheim and, and eat what they eat in Mannheim, then that's what it is. There isn't like, oh, because you're worth this, this is not worth your... You can work like that, but mm-hmm. it's very limiting creatively. And that's kind of how I've always tried to do things, just take things case by case and um, like not have this overhang of what your perceived ticket value is. Because it's so varying in every country, every city, time and place, promoter, all of these things. So there's that side um, because people will be surprised what I'm willing to work for, at least in a DJ capacity. And then the uh, the other side is um, I see people maybe making that mistake of, well, I'm not going to do certain things because I think that's too low or like it's not worth my time. They go, oh, well, that's not, that's beneath me now. Like I've done that already. And again, it's like one of these things that um, it stops you connecting with people. Like it, it, if you take it out of the DJ context and you say, well, I'm not going to work with another musician because they don't sell out Brixton Academy. It's just like stupid. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sure. But people people work like this, and and then they hit brick walls, and they go, well, "Why? Why? Why? Why have people? No one's. Why is no one coming to my show? Why is like no one want to work with me?" I'm like, "Well, it's because you've isolated yourself financially, and by making all by making every decision financial." Um, and then for the young people coming in, I think that there's there's this. Gulf of expectation. There's an expectation, you know, maybe for a few years you won't earn any money. And then maybe there's the other side of that hill where you earn loads of money. They're like, oh, I see this person. They're playing at every festival. They must be earning loads. And 
no one ever sees what anyone earns. So they can always just assume that until proven otherwise, but they never get proven otherwise. So I don't know. And maybe the conversation in the industry can evolve away from just like, you know, what someone's perceived ticket value is. Like I will do workshops with mm-hmm. young people for nothing. Or if someone wants to do it, if they, if they can pay expenses, whatever, I'll just do it because I like working with young people and I like um, helping out in my community where I can. Doesn't mean that my, <laughs> my time is worth nothing, right? Or it doesn't, sure. it, and I'm trying to articulate that to my peers and be like, hey, look, if you're earning, let's say you earned £2,000 on a weekend, you know, on a Tuesday afternoon, you can you can go and work with a bunch of kids for nothing because you earn £2,000 on a weekend. You're, you're, you're good. And not viewing, yeah, like the things so in a, such a binary way. And I guess like people have this thing of like, they don't know how much to charge for shit. So, um, which is a tr- another tricky way to navigate this whole space. There is no standard rate. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like, um, like a like a big issue here is is the degree to which the the culture rewards kind of ostentatious displays of wealth. So you know the classic one being you know the <laughs> the selfie in the private jet, right? And the fact that those posts do get ridiculous engagement just shows that it's um it's kind of an endemic thing, really. I think in in the the way people like perceive their like celebrities, for want of a better word, right? Because essentially that's what it's certainly in the same paradigm as that, right? And you see DJs, you know, doing pretty similar posts to you know any other celebrity that as i said the classic one being the um you know getting on the jet to go to the next show right and that's just um i mean i've always found that like it's like the opposite of what it what dance music should be just just taking dance music culture as a as an example and without wanting to be too sort of dogmatic about it but to me it's just like it, it doesn't sit well with someone trying to be genuinely creative, I, I think. But but having said that, sometimes, you know, a culture can involve, you know, things which are, you know, a bit ostentatious, a bit sort of gauche, I guess, or whatever the, the correct term would be, but do manage to be, like, really creative. I mean, like, you know, hip-hop culture's always had a kind of slight, slightly uncomfortable sort of relationship between these two things, right? Because obviously the level of creativity in hip hop is is mind blowing and has been for thirty years or whatever, more than thirty years now. But it does include these aspects to it which are like quite uncomfortable, frankly. What do you think about that? Um, well, some the people, I guess the, the DJ celebrity people that do that, they are celebrities and they do, they're mimicking celebrity posts, and that's a very small section of the the the, the DJ community. So that that doesn't bother me. The same way that like, people say, "Oh, well, Paris Hilton." It's like I don't, I don't listen to those people. I don't, I don't follow them, so I don't care. And but for my, like, I guess my scene community people that I'm engaging with regularly, or that I'd see in the club or buy records from, um, there, there's, I guess, like you're saying about being ostentatious or something. If people knew how much money they earned, yeah, maybe it would change people's feelings towards them for and negatively. Mm. But I can take that hit because I'm not trying to sell anything to anyone. So I don't think anyone 
I don't think everyone should do this or anyone else should do this. I'm just in a position where this might be helpful to other people coming in, maybe orbit in the same space. And it's not going to, oh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully not negatively impact my day to day in the same way it would for sure. an up and coming artist. For an up and coming artist, um, you know, we, we, our culture in the UK is very underdog culture. And then when you get to a certain point, people will like switch off, which is part of like a, it's a good creative limitation. But the, the role that I'm playing. Sorry, let me let me just jump in there and ask. Can I can I just ask you to clarify that a little bit? That kind of underdog, and then um, yeah, that that paradigm. Can you just expand that a little bit? Um, I guess we we are very loud about people on the way up, and then when they get to a certain point, uh, we don't like celebrate their success in the same way. If I compared it to American culture, like American culture is like you know applauds when Jay Z becomes a billionaire. If if that was right. here, yep. we would be saying that's gross or that's like, what are they doing with their money? It would be a lot more questioning or are they paying their taxes? And that there'll be a lot more uh, scrutiny of um, how their wealth is built and who's getting paid. And it, like, whereas Americans take it, well, this is a broad, broad strokes here, but they'll be like, you know, they started from the bottom. Now they're here. That is the, that is the American dream. Like the English dream is basically own a house and have a car and a dog and a family. That's it. <laughs> like, and not be above the Go to the, the pub fame. on Sunday. Exactly. You know, you, you know tallest yeah. puppy gets cut type mentality. You sit on like the way I, I grew up in London, like all the houses are the same. You get this, you go to the same school as everyone else. You get the same car, you get the same, you know what I mean? We, we mm. are very, like we fit, we fit in type thing. So people that generally stand out, yeah, can be, not isolated, but you, yeah, you're making yourself more vulnerable in your community. Cause it's not like I live in the same place that I grew up in. Um, I guess, which is quite unusual for London now. Um, so if you, mm. if you're kind of like, let's just use wealth in a monetary way. If your material wealth had changed, then people will feel differently about you. If you live on like more or less the same place and people yeah. treat, yeah, people like, Oh, well that, that person is, that person's uh, smashing it right now or whatever. And people do feel differently about that, but I'm not, I'm not rich. So I, I feel like I can share something that looks again, achievable or reachable for most people. If they've got a job or a salary or something, they would look at mine and be like, Oh, okay, fair enough. There, there's nothing shocking here. I can earn like a, you know, slightly above average salary doing interesting stuff and where you where I earn the most money or earn little bits of money would probably surprise people and I do the DJing bit for fun which just happens to earn money at the same time yeah okay so well let, well, let me ask you then since you brought it up like I mean you don't have to talk figures but like and and you mentioned at the top that your you know the yellow square thing is a sort of it's a bit of a hobby so so um how how do you make most of your money these days Okay, so not, like, well, it's changed in the last month because this project has actually taken off. But like pre- previously, it was my, I would say my nine living was paid for um, by my management work. Um, so I'd call that my day job. Right. And then the DJing yep. stuff on the side, um, oh, it's become on the side over the last few years, and especially you know, <laughs> during the pandemic because I wasn't DJing, um, yeah. has been like a little bit of a bonus. So before I presented on the internet as a DJ, but I was actually a, an artist manager. 
but now I've flipped it around. Maybe there's like a bit more of a broad understanding. Like, oh, okay, this is, I'm not getting paid from doing, you know, every six months at Fabric or something. That's not how I earn my money. But yeah, I, I, I guess the open salary thing now, I've had conversations about it. As soon as I put up the square, my phone rang, people texting me, I got DMs, people asking me if I'm crazy, don't do it, everyone's reactions. But what yeah. I'm going to actually do is maybe at the end of every quarter, I'm going to select different bits of work that I've done and then talk about why, why I did that. Or, you know, I've got paid this amount to play here. This is why I did it. This is why I wanted to do it. And it's fine. I don't care if someone else got paid double. Someone else paid, got paid. I don't care. It's not just their, their issue. Um, and just having a discussion around that, especially in a situation where I can, if the say like the organization said, I'm playing at Corsica this Friday. If Corsica call with me putting up, hey, this is how much we paid Elijah and we can have a public conversation about why that is and it working for them and it working for me. Good, because I want the, our partners and you know, promoters and other businesses that we work with to make money. You know, it's not about necessarily just me. Sometimes it's like I want the people that are involving me in their business to get something out of it. Right? <laughs> it's like you see yeah, situations yeah. like these DJs will be like, "Yeah, man, I got paid five grand," and then the promoter's like, "Yeah, I just lost five grand." It's like, well, <laughs> this is silly, right? You just, I mean. Um, and I've been a promoter, so I know what it, I know the economics of things. So yeah, I'm going to try it out and, and, yeah. s- and see how people respond to it. And again, like if people find it really uncomfortable, then I'll be like, well, why do you find it uncomfortable? Do you, you know, I earn money. You, I know these artists earn money. You see these people playing at festivals in front of 10,000 people. What do you think they're doing? I think it would be really useful. I mean, as, as someone who does as much different stuff as you do, I definitely think it would be useful for people to know the kind of relative value of those things or the relative, you know, how much you get paid um, relative one sector relative to another. Because I think there is quite a lot of misconceptions around that. And, uh, you know, not even necessarily needing to know the figures, but I I just think the the perceptions would would change, you know, with that sort of information. It's helpful in terms of, you know, what I'm doing with my life. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm 35 years old, like, I've got a mortgage. Yeah. I mean, I don't have kids. That That's one expense I don't have, but I could. And if I did, I would behave differently. Like, you know I mean, there's, there's certain freedoms that I do have at the moment that allow me to do what I'm doing. So, and I live in London. I obviously I live in an expensive place, but then I live in a highly accessible place with a lot of opportunities. So this is not a situation yeah. where people can go like for like, Oh, I live in uh, Bournemouth or Elijah earns a hundred grand a year if I just do what he's doing, then I can earn a hundred. No, this is not that, but you could, you could at least get a window yeah. into maybe the the kind of spots that I'm working out of or things that I've maybe done t- a long time ago that are still paying. Cause that, that, that does, that does make, make a difference. If you had a good idea mm. <laughs> eight years ago and it's still, still kind of giving you a little um, kickback every now and then. Lovely. But, um, yeah, I guess people just don't discuss it. So you just never know. You're just shooting in a dark. Sure, sure, exactly. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Okay, right. Why are so many shows getting cancelled? This is this is one I wanted to talk about. Um, I saw this is uh, it was a good Twitter thread as well as the Instagram post. Lots of reasons to it. Talked about it on the show with Ned Beckett, and um, actually also with Chris Goss from Hospital Records. We talked about it with him. Now, obviously, the pandemic is a like a like an enormous reason here, and the sort of continuing after effects of it but there's there's different stuff too so give me uh give me your bird's eye view of this question yeah so um my three leading reasons are uh overestimation of the correlation of plays press and followers to live ticket demand someone getting a million streams today doesn't mean that someone wants to go and see you play live um because you got a few articles on whatever websites and maybe a a stream whatever a boiler room or tiny desk or whatever it's going to be doesn't mean that people are necessarily going to be available on the 1st of september to see you in oxford <laughs> it, it, all of these things are not as heavily correlated as they once were especially with the amount of information that people are passing through i listen to music all day and i don't think oh like i'd love to see steve lacy on on the 1st of october like it doesn't even pass through my head but it would have to be like mm. just pure luck that I would just see the tickets and be also available on that date and also want to pay £45 and also have someone to go with. There's a lot of a lot of things happening. Yeah, things things have got to line up, right? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. um if I if if we just boil it down to the to to my world, the DJ world, um it is I guess easy to be fooled by the engagement that you get on posts and think, well, if I could just do this everywhere, then you know, like, but everywhere is not London, everywhere is not Berlin, everywhere is not Paris. Um, and as soon as you yeah. step out of these kind of microcosms, people do recognize, oh, damn, like, what I do is actually niche. <laughs> and there was a moment probably in the, in the, in the noughties, in the tens, um, I don't know how, you, do you call it noughties or tens or whatever? The, no, I guess the tens and the noughties where the internet like amplified all these like small DIY artists and, we had like a bit of like a distribution advantage on the rest of the world, the rest of Europe. And, you know, these Brits were able to just go everywhere and, and play and people would be there because there was no other information to take in. But now everywhere has their own NTS, everywhere has their own uh, techno star, everywhere has their own ecosystem of building communities. So why the hell are you going to fly out some random geek from London to play techno for you when you've got people from your local area that you've been building up and supporting, you know, it changes like what, mm. what we're creating. I don't mean geeking about the way, by the way, I mean, like, 
<laughs> I'm talking about someone like me. Like you getting a guy with a black t-shirt to come play music for you. Like, don't know if that's going to be the thing that people do. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's also me actually. So, <laughs> <laughs> And then um, yeah, my other reasons were, you know, a financial offer made six months ago might not be viable now. So particularly if you're in a band, um, you know, six six months ago, you would have been like, okay, we could just about make that work. Now prices for everything have raised, say like thirty percent or something dumb, even for just for trains and mm. hotels. If you try, if you if you've tried to book hotels for five people or two people in the last three months, you'll see you know the difference in price. It might be double. Like yeah. I'm paying, you know, even to get London to Amsterdam, people going to ADE, people telling me they're paying three hundred quid on an EasyJet from from Heathrow. I'm like to to go and. Yeah do a meeting with someone you could talk to on the phone. <laughs> this is, this is nuts. Um, and a lot of bands, especially in the early days, you used to do your shows at a loss with a loss or break even with the mentality that you were going to go and make the money on the festivals. And then festivals are having a bad time too. So you've got, you've got, a, again, you've got, you've got a lineup on your side. Well, so you've got to be able to tour at a loss not get sick, not have the show cancelled or any particular show cancelled for any reason. You've got to be able to get there without anything going wrong. And like that's become a lot harder. And then I guess the last reason that I didn't see pick up that, that much steam was I guess every artist that could possibly tour or wants to tour right now is touring at the same time. And yeah. The, this, the the people that run ticketing companies to get the, the thing going again. They said, oh, you can you could just refund if you can't go anymore. Well, look, the the marketing of the, the of Great Britain right now is austerity and uh, cost of living crisis, inflation, bills going up. Mm. And you've got an opportunity to get 50 quid back for a ticket that you paid for <laughs> last January. You're like, I'll, I'll take that back, actually. I can, I can save that. I can spend that on a nice uh lack of i don't know my groceries for the week or you know what i mean so it, yeah. people might be reconsidering things that they're already committed to and going actually i don't want to see the artists anymore um the, the the shows that got cancelled because of omicron last year you know i haven't listened to the album for about seven months and moved on so i'm not gonna go all the way to brixton academy to to watch them anymore and people are performing in front of half the crowds that that paid for them originally it's nuts mm. it is nuts yeah so okay just going back to the first reason you cited there which is the um the sort of lack of correlation between streams and general online engagement and ticket sales like, i mean the, the streams one is, is is the kind of the most sort of egregious bit of that i think because so many uh so much of streaming figures is driven by playlists and plays which are basically not fan plays as it were so not active listeners who are really interested in the artist who are who are ever gonna you know they might not have a track they might not skip past it but they're never gonna buy a ticket right and i think um particularly when we're talking about djs and when we're talking about the dance scene and the rave scene and those that kind of like the whole thing which has obviously been bolstered significantly by how big the festival side of that is now like a lot of the time i think people buy tickets to those events 
because they want to go and rave rather than because they want to go and see particular acts. I mean, there might be, you know, a, a, there might be a few names that they know on the bill that gets them to buy a ticket to that particular event, but they want to go to an event because they want to go raving rather than going to see a band because they love all the songs. I, th- do you, I mean, do, do you agree with that as a general distinction, like between the dancing and the rest of it? Definitely. And, uh, especially the last year, I've just thought the marketing of electronic music is terrible. Like you, uh, any every electronic music festival basically is name of festival in some park, and then names of people listed. Like how compelling yeah. is that for in terms of building um, new audience? You know, I've got younger cousins, and. They're like, what is that? Who are all these people? What, where do I listen to music? What kind of music is it? And those, the, yeah. the communications don't answer those questions. Like, if you just saw, um, like a first, yeah, like a new festival that's come out in the last couple of years, that's all they do. They just stack all of these names that you would assume that someone wants to go outside and rave to in a park just knows. But how how would they know them? How would they engage with all these things? Like, how would they know like old school jungle DJs? How would they know like? Uh, someone that's on nts like how like i think we are so wrapped up in our own own little world sometimes that we don't actually see how it interfaces with people that don't are not in it as much as we are and i see this when i'm walking in the street in london and i just see posters for stuff like if i see like a poster for um just whatever name insert festival and next to an advert for a nike shoe i'm like that is clear, so much clearer what that is and wireless advertising. And rather than this thing, which is names, price, date. Like how, why would someone just walking down the street be curious about this thing um, over the other? And especially on Instagram, where we've got so much opportunity to to get more creative, to, to show people like what it looks like inside these things. It's always, it seems to be like it's missing. It's like it's missing the... What is what does it feel like to go to this, and what should make someone part with fifty to upwards to two hundred quid to go and spend three days in a park with um, usually dudes playing techno? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, I think it's a real challenge there because I think that well, I mean, when you're talking about getting younger people interested in this stuff like you're you're completely correct to say that i mean how how would they know who i don't know jeff mills is how would they know particularly after two years where no one's gone out like how would they know what it's even like at something like that and i think that's it's i think it's even more problematic for clubs because i mean like i've kind of one of the big trends as you sort of alluded to is that you know, festivals have become much more of an important part of the live music infrastructure in in dance music than they ever used to be. And the club scene has suffered as a result of that. But the club scene is the grassroots of it, right? And, um, you know, music scenes largely come from small clubs. And uh, one quote that I had written down from you regarding this is that was, where is it? Is a club night still the best way of connecting like-minded artists? And one of the things I talked about uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago is Spoonie was the difference between 
the way UK Garage developed and the way Grime developed. And basically the difference was that the police essentially shut down most of the Grime raves. So it never really had that infrastructure, like a like kind of live infrastructure around it. And it became just a kind of a music scene rather than a club scene. And what had really built the culture of UK Garage was that... Uh, was that with all those clubs and, and the stuff that went around it. Like, for example, like the dress codes and like, you know, the kind of shoes and champagne and all that kind of stuff, which was a really big part of the kind of aesthetic of UK Garage. So, and again, I don't know how this is going to resolve into a question, but <laughs> tell me tell me what you think about... Uh, well, actually, but maybe just um, with regards to your, the, the quote from yours that I just mentioned, like, it, are club nights still the best way? But if they're not, then, then how does the music scene develop? Um... <laughs> I guess this is this, I guess like people want answers to these things. And I'm like, no, that's the challenge of the artist to to make those things. Like I've already lived through that. I'm not saying that I don't care about building new things. I do want to build new things. But part of it to me and what keeps me engaged is that someone is going to figure out something that none of us, it's not going to make sense to us, but it's going to make sense to the people that are coming through. And we're going to be like, oh, sick. Like they've made their own plastic people they made their own thing. And that's why I get so like irate that people go into radio as the thing. I'm like, how can that again, like you're going to legacy format, legacy media to make a new thing, which is, I just feel like it's backwards. Whereas mm-hmm. I would hope that like, say like a young artist, a young group of artists, young creatives are going, right. We've got TikToks. We've got, I don't know, warehouses and we've got Wi-Fi. Like, what do we do with this? Rather than, these men seem to have been doing FM, vinyl and clubs. <laughs> like we make our own version of that. It's like, no, make your version of the thing and soundtrack it in a way that makes sense to you. Like, and so I, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a cop out of like, I don't know. There are a thousand different ways. Like one could be just electronic music around food, for example. Everyone seems to be outside eating in restaurants all day, eating good stuff. But then the, the music in these places is generally not thought about or at, at worst rubbish i'm like okay isn't there like a, an overlap of we all seem to like eat good food like food like going outside like having a drink with friends if that soundtrack was more thought about and cared for and created by by people doing interesting stuff at the same time that's a that's a club night you have you know the, the kind of wellness side of things you know produced by people that also release club records and doing like, you know, the ambience stuff. Like, okay, that's a club night, you know, club night, quote unquote. You have, I was like skating through lockdown, uh, the roller skaters and stuff. And they were playing all these like old R&B and soul records. I'm like, if you were doing this with new music, we would have a movement here. But that wasn't, again, I wasn't a priority in that community. But then a bunch of skaters that also produce, then you've got another club night that's outdoors and free and active. Do you know what I'm saying? That's three ideas off the top of my head. Mm. and I'm I'm yeah, also yeah, not 18 yeah. I'm also not using TikTok I'm also uh, you know got my own you know ways and thoughts about doing things so I like the idea that someone can go you know uncle bro like this doesn't make sense like we're going to do it this way and just seeing people find their community their tribe and success that way you know what I'm saying like I that to me, like when I when when I saw like Sherelle come through, I was like, oh, yeah, sick. Like no one, 
like no one that looks like that or sounds like that or talks like that had been doing that kind of music. So I just want to see where this goes. Sick. And I, that's what I got excited about. Whereas, you know, <laughs> generally when I'm like, when someone comes through and if they're being honest, like when they say, oh, you know, it's just, I just want to let the music do the talking. It's all about music. I'm like, oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever anyone says that, my eyes just roll back. <laughs> immediately, you know? Yeah, it's because we've heard it before. And it's, again, I don't think it's like them being negative. It's just like, we've heard that story before. And um, so it's just, mm-hmm. just immediately less interesting. But I don't think it's ever been true in the history of music. You know, there's always been a story as well as whatever music is being played, right? Uh, even if the story is there's no story, right? <laughs> you know? So um, moving on, we have been going for a fair bit already. So let's um, let's do a couple more of these and then I want to talk to you about grime generally. Sure. So there can be more DJs but not more trying to do the same thing. So one of the things that I've really struggled with over the last few years is the the way technology has reduced barriers to entry for making music, which is kind of good enough, right? And by good enough, I mean like you can make a tune which kind of works in a club, um, but doesn't have a great deal of, I don't know, without sounding too pretentious, like it doesn't have a great deal of like artistic merit other than that. Uh, And that's a whole philosophical question about dance music actually. But just the pure volume of music that gets made and gets released now is in its in of itself, I think, a problem. And and that's part of what you're getting at with that quote, I think. But can you yeah, just just tell me about that quote and, and, and what it means. Yeah, um it's kind of like relating to that to that point about the clubs and new ideas and um maybe formulas as well, like okay, this person done it this way, so I also need to do it that way. That's the only way to be a DJ. Being a DJ is having a boiler room and an NTS show and a release on a label and uh, an agent. That's what being a DJ is when it's not like DJing purely is just the fundamentally just the love of music, then collecting, buying it, creating it in a way that makes sense to you and then sharing with others if you want. Like most of you know, the DJs, people that I grew up with, they didn't really play out. They play sometimes if someone asked them what at a party or a wedding or a house party or something like that. But the mm. the fundamental DJ thing was about the love of music. And sometimes that, you know, because so much of the, the expression of it now has become an external thing, they think that that's what DJing is. It's all external. It's, it's no, it's like the fun, like the, so much of that, that thing of the love of music and the, the, the learning about it and making it and making it happen is private or is done in isolation or is done maybe with a friend or with a partner or whatever it's going to be. And um, in the general, like kind of, yeah, the DJ career aesthetic that doesn't come across as much as it could. You could see this through a DJ's Instagram. A DJ's Instagram is going to have them standing outside Berghain. It's going to have them you know in a airport it's gonna have the nts flyer it's gonna have a clip of them playing at boiler room but it doesn't actually say you know what i love this record this thing is you know this is one of my favorite tunes of the year i pulled this one out of the bag i haven't listened to this for time this is sick 
like some of my favorite mm. DJs to actually follow on Instagram, believe it or not, are the people that talk about music. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a novel concept, like the DJ talking about music. Right, there's surprisingly few of them, right? <laughs> and um, there's, there's, this, there's this guy that I've, I've been watching, um, uh, Luke Unabomba, I think his name is. And yeah, it's, yeah, just, yeah. It's, just, it's just a guy just talking about tunes in his, in his I think in his, in his room of records. And I was like, mm. why don't more people do this? This is like the easiest concept. Like, again, there's thousands of mixes, there's thousands of YouTubes, there's thousands of playlists. But when you have someone talking about the experience of playing a record in a place and has a memory attached and like with buying it and playing it for the first time and it getting, uh, well, he doesn't talk about reloads, but in my culture, it would be like when it got a reload at that yeah, thing yeah. and that, when Skepta spat that bars and that thing and this mix of that, like it punches through at such a high level. So, what, you know, when I say, oh, there can be more DJs doing different things, it's like, that's, that's again, another possible lane. We don't need more, you know, standardized career, step-by-step DJ from, you know, NTS show to essential mix DJ. Boring. Yeah. It's been done. Yeah, it definitely has been done. Uh, what do you think about the supply of music, though, as well, as I, as I sort of mentioned? Like, what do you think about that sort of influence of technology, meaning that there is just this kind of like avalanche of tunes which are fine and probably playable in a club, but, you know, don't really move a needle and probably sort of um, crowd out maybe some of the stuff which is actually artistically valuable? Um, I think we would over time they vote with their feet in general. So it, it, it does make it harder for, for us like wading through music, but um, you'll see this even with the, the clips that DJ posts, DJs post on Instagram are generally familiar tunes to people or p- tunes that a bunch of people have got around and decided are, is the, you know, quote unquote best tune. So there are moments when, and space for the, the, the kind of cream to rise through through all of that and it's even more amazing now when something actually does because there's so much more stuff like it, yeah and say like in garage it was probably easier to for a tune to break through <laughs> so maybe sure, yeah, yeah. like a, a memory attached to those things just because there was less information but now it's even like a bigger achievement when you have a song that that gets to the level i'm trying to think of what that kind of song would be like um it's the most like obvious dance music hit uh, bicep glue or something like that right when something like that happens, yeah. you go, okay, well, it's cool that a sizable amount of people all have decided to like this song at the same time. That's cool. That's still yeah. a cool, cool moment for that to happen. I don't, we can't solve the problem of everyone making music and um, we shouldn't even use any resources trying to mitigate that, let people make what they want to make and um, people will figure out. Yo, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's possible to put the genie back in the bottle. And actually, you know, in some respects, it's it's a really good thing for people to make music. It's a healthy thing for people to be doing, like expressing their creativity. Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with it on, on that level. Um, I think it's just, it poses, yeah, it poses sort of like questions to be answered in the in the marketplace for want of a better term, right? So, um, so yeah, no, I I. I I pretty much agree with yeah what you've just said there. So final one, I hadn't actually write down the quote, but just with, with regards to the desire, the broad desire in the industry to embrace diversity and how that sort of plays out in practice. Uh, 
And one of the things I talked about on the show previously is using sort of gender diversity as a specific example of this. And the, the, the difference between trying to get more women and girls making music and just parachuting in sort of 50% lineup quotas and like the the way those two things sort of interact with each other and you know maybe having like a 50 a hard 50% quota whereby you know more than 90% of the people making tunes or some some disproportionate wildly disproportionate figure are still men now that's that's a that's the that's a specific example but i think i think you were talking more about sort of right racial diversity within the scene in terms of what you were talking about and your the yellow square in, in question but but i guess it's sort of like the tendency to be sort of tokenistic with this stuff i think is the issue so tell me about that yeah i guess i've got two sides so i've managed flavor d for nine and a half years and she's a, mm. a woman producing uh grime and drum bass bass lion garage yeah so um and she was one of the only people doing it at that time so mm. I experienced um, her breakthrough from, you know, behind the scenes as a manager. And so when I was supporting her work and traveling with her to gigs and just seeing that, you know, her be the only woman on a lineup for years um, before yeah. this was a broad conversation, even with the, you know, bigger um, artists in the scene. And now we've seen that people have changed their tune and realized why it's important for gender diversity, which I'm obviously there for. But one of the the conversations that people are not having is like like you said about the music making part of things and the, the infrastructure building that people do also. So a lot of the time people describe, say like me or Flavor D as a DJ. And it's like, no, DJing is the final form. That's the f- performance bit. But the work that we do, you know, is production, like releasing records, being the, the infrastructure like i am the promoter i am the the person i mean the person that's actually making the things happen so to to, to boil yeah. it down and be like oh we need more we need more black djs or we need more female djs like yeah if you like but we also need space for people to see what we actually do and what you know the other value that we contribute to get to that point in the first place in terms of kind of black diversity and that conversation it's so it's so complex because usually when people are trying to do something that's proactive, it it is for new artists coming through, which which obviously mm-hmm. makes sense. But then there's a whole generation of people that were like, "Hold on, so what? We just get bumped? Like we we didn't get to be part of this the you know this change in sentiment and thought and care? So like, what do we not count now? Did our contributions not count? Did the last twenty years not happen?" And on both sides, I feel like really, like, yeah, I've kind of, it's like kind of conflicting. It's like, oh, we can't solve everything in an industry that is ultimately declining. It's just not, it's not like loads of space to do new stuff because, you know, like literally I see the promoters going out of business, festivals going out of business. It's not like business is booming. It would kind of be easier to do it from a position of strength. Um, it's, it's, this this conversation is so layered that not that I struggle to have it is that when I started having it people were like oh yeah like 
you're you're black oh, yeah of course like, i even like didn't even figure this into like oh your label is black owned or <laughs> do you know what I mean all these conversations i'm like yeah like i yeah i have a the label is run by two black people from london so yeah it's a black owned label but because we've never presented as that way we've never made that like a yeah. forefront of our discussion about what we do it's just yeah. not a thing whereas i guess now that is part of people's identity or their presentation so they can maybe like dominate a conversation that way i'm like well i'm black still i'm i'm also pushing for um diversity in many different ways but we also have to find ways to to really not, not educate sounds like a shit word but like to really give people a picture like this is what the yellow squares are about too it's like about the like what we're underpins a career in this thing it's and it's not djing i will i will say that on record the DJing is it's not like a it's not a decoy but it's like that is something that comes out of it rather than I don't think we should be fighting just to have you know 50% female male DJs represented at a lineup on a particular night I don't think that is what we're trying to do here yeah it's a very simple way of expressing it isn't it and it's kind of an easy box to tick I think for a lot of people which is a big part of the reason why it gets so much attention exactly and um, but if that's a way to get into that point of yeah, there being more women producing, there being more um, women promoters, there being more uh, like yeah, that, you know, the broadest set of diversity. Not talking about just race and, and gender here, but the broadest kind of diversity. Um, then fine, like do it that way. But again, like with all of the questions I ask, is like I think there's a thousand solutions, not one, and it gets. It, it, Mm. It's that sometimes one solution takes, you know, all of the the media space. And that has been one of the solutions. Oh, we need 50-50 gender diversity lineups. We need 50, we need um, racial diverse lineups. Okay, fine. But then what other, What about production? When I look at the, um, you, you, know, you can look at the PRS reports and it says, you know, 1% of the producers in the UK are women. Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I kind of the way I've characterised it before is that, you know, these sorts of, um, like, doing the kind of quotas, that's a real kind of top-down thing. But to get participation going, that really requires a kind of much more of a bottom-up approach, and that's much harder to do. It requires much more strategic thinking, and it probably requires quite a lot more resources as well, right? So you can understand why people kind of fall back on the, well, if we can just get 50%, like, on a lineup, then that's that's enough. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I really think it takes away our agency as well. I'm like, you know... All the things that I didn't like about music, like part of why we started our labels and parties was because like we was going to change it. We didn't have to say, you know, fuck that person or change this or change that. I was like, I don't have to say that. You just do it. And like, if there's not, not to be like super business about it, but it's like, you if you doing it proves the point that it works, then you, you take the winnings here. Like, why are you going to try and mm. tell people, like, say, like, some small promoter in whatever, Oxford, oh, well, your 300 cap club is not, you know, gender diverse lineup wise. I'm like, well, it's only 300 people. Like, if 300 people agree with you and you can just put on a woman, you should do that. That's an opportunity for you. Like, you don't have to change everyone's yeah. mind to be successful in this thing. And I don't like the idea that um, people feel like, even people with money, rich, whatever, have massive infrastructure, feel like they have power over you. Because once you've decided that, then you've lost control entirely. So, okay, now they've given you a slot at their festival. 
Okay. And then, then you realize, okay, well, I'm actually getting paid, you know, a tenth or a percent of what the, the top people are getting paid because they're they're being tokenistic or they're, they, you said this is what you want. Whereas if you had built your own thing, it might have taken longer, it might have been harder, it might be more painful. Then you could have entered at a higher level once you've maybe got onto those other platforms. And you might actually be cutting down the like, you know, you might be lowering the floor rather than like kind of raising it. Mm. And it's, it's mm-hmm. again, like I, I'm happy for people to disagree here and have their own approaches. But I, I really want people to, you know, this like idea of empowerment. If, if, if the idea is empowerment here, then we have to empower ourselves to make those changes like and stop asking people to change the way they want to work make the case ourselves do it show that it works own it and then if we want to collaborate with other people that have been doing it for longer fine and if you don't fine yeah i mean i think like the history of the dance scene certainly in the uk but i think probably in 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 europe and maybe to a lesser extent in in the states more recently but i think the history of it is really a history of people doing their own thing the kind of diy ethos so people putting on their own nights people building their own little scenes which become big scenes and like you say like taking ownership of what their music is and what their music stands for and you know if in today like you know, diversity is, is an important thing to a lot of people. And I think particularly young people, it's really important too. So I, I guess like you know, the the kind of new wave of, um, you know, small scenes which are being developed as we speak, some of which we obviously don't, you know, won't know about. I think if that stuff is kind of baked in, as it were, then the situation will just by default improve, Right. And I think, I mean, that's a sort of reason to be optimistic, I guess, with this stuff. Yeah, straight up. And yeah, there's other there's other times as well like that I don't contribute to conversations because I want, like knowing what the squares has become, me me putting my voice in the middle of it doesn't help. You know what I'm saying? So I just sometimes I just try and, re- mm. even I retweet things I don't necessarily agree with, but I'll be like, okay, this is a point of view worth hearing or this is a, a perspective worth hearing or... This is someone's experience. Like when I did um, did like a rave with like daytime as South Asian group, and I'm like, yeah, cool. Like I don't know, I don't, I'm not South Asian, and I don't, I'm not kind of well versed in what's happening in the communities and why people are organising in certain ways. But I feel like that formation is something that is a good thing for them and is a good thing for the rest of the electronic music landscape. You know what I'm saying? But there's nothing for me to add. Do you know what I mean? There's nothing. To, what can I say? Like. Just, just listen to the tunes, work out who you like and the talent, and maybe go go and check out an event, something slightly different to what you would normally go to, um, and that's it. Or the people that are South Asian that follow me, if just I might have discovered it through that. Great, that's it. There isn't anything else for me to, you know, what I mean to contribute, and sometimes that's probably healthy as well. Yeah, yeah, abs- absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so as mentioned, uh, want to talk to you about grime more generally stepping back from all this stuff and I want to talk about your direct experiences which have eventually led you to this doing this um doing the yellow squares thing um grime is an area we haven't really talked about too much on the show um it's kind of like come up as a result of discussions about uk garage and about dubstep but like actual real insight into the grime scene itself has been 
sadly lacking <laughs> thus far on this podcast. So I think it's fair to say that you were part of the second wave of grime. Is that is that fair? I don't know if people think about it like that or talk about it like that. But it was you, I mean... Exactly. Yeah? Okay, so tell me a little bit about how you initially got interested in the music itself in the first place. Well, I'm from East London and listened to Pirate Radio my whole life. So it was just an evolution of the music that was already there, Jungle, Garage, you know, Dancehall, Hip Hop, whatever. But then Grime happened, like the sets that um, I've kind of become famous and listened to like firsthand just because my radio was on. Um, and there was it was happening for a couple of years before it even got, or not a couple of years, a few years before it even got named Grime or people already had a kind of identification for it. We just knew the artist names and the beats and the DJs and what time people are on. So that was the first kind of thing. And then I was... So sorry, who are you who are you referring to there? Which DJs, which acts? Talking about like Genius and Master Crew and Slimzy and, uh, you know, Wiley, Dizzy Rascal, yeah. Yeah, Rough Squad. Um, yeah, that, I guess, generation of artists, Morphire Crew... Yeah, so uh, yeah, a bunch of like the East London part radio because that was the the only music I could get as well. So if I, for people that don't know, if you were in East London listening to East London part radio, you couldn't get the South London part radio. So people's experience of the music was different. Like they grew up listening to different artists or different crews if they're more or less the same age as me. Um, and yeah, I grew up with some of the DJs that, that are kind of become known for that scene as well, so... And then I got to play on rinse later on in my life. So. Sure. So yeah, as, as I mentioned, we talked to Spoonie about how uh, sort of grime coincided with the sort of police cracking down on on garage events, and there was a obviously there was a crossover um, between garage and grime because I mean the term grime sort of originally came from people calling the dark side of garage just the grimy stuff. I believe. In fact, I. I but, that was yeah that was definitely my experience of the time as a, as a record buyer anyway so like were you going to garage like events and stuff were, were you in, in into that side of it yeah just for perspective i was 16 in 2004 so this is a okay. year that, year after boy in the corner came out and the summer that i was 16 what do you call it by wiley came out and um lethal b pow so i'm from walthamstow where lethal b's from and this, this song pow was like just huge thing and yeah, 16 is the key age, right? That's really when your kind of my mind is open to like these kinds of influ- influential things going on, right? So yeah, so that, that explains a lot. Exactly. So that was the first summer that I could really just go anywhere I wanted. There was at this, at this time as well, there was no IDs. You didn't need an ID to get into any club or anything like that. You just have to look old enough and look like you're going to buy some drinks. Like pretty much you can go anywhere you wanted. Yeah. But that summer I went to this thing in Victoria Park called the Respect Festival and you I saw like, you know, Roll Deep perform and Lethal Beat perform and all this stuff. So that was like one of the first times I got to see well, people outside for one. And then that that same summer I went um, Notting Hill Carnival and then they were performing the songs and playing the songs there. And again, it's so intense. Like this is pre, pre-mobile phones as well. I was just going there just with friends. And, you know, you're hearing this like music go off for the first time, it was, it, it, yeah, there was, <laughs> yeah, there's videos from it now on the, on the internet. There's another one from like Luton Carnival as well, the same year um, that I went to. Just start, hang on, let me, let me jump in there. Let me just jump in there for one sec. Just for people from outside the UK, just describe Notting Hill Carnival 
in that respect just briefly because it is it's very much its own thing right yeah so not in hill carnival um generally like a million people descend on west london and the sound system set up in the street um usually playing like reggae dancehall soca like kind of music from the caribbean and then it, yeah there's there's bigger kind of sound systems there's one called rampage that's just huge um and maybe a bit like three three thousand people or four thousand people in, in one tight space in the middle of the street in the daytime um, it's, very, it's really yeah. unusual. It's, it's so intense. And this was, again, before they were really, they had like crowd control down and, and again, before, you know, camera phones and all this kind of stuff. So when I when I went there, obviously they were playing Garage and all this stuff, but the intensity when uh, the, the, the Grime songs came on was like nothing I've ever, ever experienced. I don't know what it was like, say like listening to Original Nutter for the first time it got played or something like that, but that was like the, the equivalent of its day. Yeah, like people were literally they were like they had to stop the music and they said look we're gonna play the song now so be careful okay we're gonna play this like please like take care of each other like they literally had to warn you and then yeah, they played yeah. it and then it, like there was like certain times they'll play it and they'll get a reload on every because there's 10 mcs on the song everyone has like eight bars and then it would get a reload for every bit of the song. So the song could be going on for <laughs> half an hour. It, that never, like, it, even since, there's not been a song like that where, yeah, it takes like half an hour to play the song. And I remember like, the last, so, so Carnival finishes at seven o'clock and I was following this float and they said that, you know, the, the, the disclaimer, like we're going to play the song, but we've got to turn around this corner. So the, the float is like on a truck, so it's driving and then it did this right, and they said, look, all right, now we've straightened up. We're going to play the song now. And it's maybe like 6.20. And then they played it. And then like it was going off, like people were acting completely wild. And then they were like, all right, we can't play any more music now. Because that, like, whatever, it was 6.50. And it was like, we, we can't, there's nothing to play. We just have to stop. And that was it. That was the yeah. end of that Carnival 2004. It was, it was nuts. So... But at that time, I wasn't right. I wasn't like DJing or anything. I was just enjoying the music. I was at college, just figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. And then when I went to university, I kind of I went to university just outside London. And I'd be, yeah, I'd bought some records, and yeah, I'd, I'd bought records just because that was the only way to get the music. More than like there was there was no like iTunes or um, download stores at that time. So I would just buy the things just yeah. so I had it. But I wasn't like you know an active DJ or on pirate radio and stuff like that i'd learn slowly learning how to mix um on vinyl because that was the only way to to learn at that time and then um yeah i just started that was happening at the same time as the democratization of music production and then at the same time as the internet <laughs> or broadband exploded exploding yeah yeah, yeah. Let, let me just let me just ask you at this point like when you when you first got into it and when you're talking about that experience at uh, Notting Hill. Uh, how aware were you of the connection between Grime and UK Garage? Yeah, I was hundred percent aware. Like it was a through line. It was like yeah, it was grimy garage. It was the same music. It was there wasn't like yep. some massive distinction. Like there was so solid before. There was mm-hmm. MCs. There was Pay As You Go crew. There was Heartless crew. There was all these things that like MC and on like <laughs> I don't know how to explain to people from not from the UK, but. Man in England will rap over anything. It, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. Like it's, it, and maybe there's something kind of cool about the UK. It's like people will pick up a mic 
and it's going to happen. You know what I'm saying? And this is, this is not just like, in, like a black thing. It's like across the whole country. Um, mm. Whatever everyone's version of MCing or whatever they call hosting or toasting or whatever it's going to be, there's a certain point in a, if you're at something, someone's going to pick up the mic and do something. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's, 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 maybe that's in every culture in some way, but um, yeah, there's MCs and jungle, you know, drum bass and, and then garage and then grime became like a more, I guess like focused on MC genre rather than it being like a beat led genre or DJ led genre. Yeah. So, okay. And so I talked about like the relative lack of sort of clubs and a small sort of club scene, grassroots club scene. Is it, I mean, is, does that tally with your experience of, of that period of grime? Um, I guess so. Like I was going to, uh, I was like, yeah, 16 to like, 19. I was just going to anything. Like, and again, like this, there was reasons why, you know, things were getting canceled or um, parties couldn't happen. But then um, mm-hmm. the scene was small and it wasn't just club music. So to say, well, yeah. it, you know, it didn't develop into a club scene because there was no clubs or because things were getting locked off. Actually, like when you look back at that music, people will maybe listen to Boy in the Corner or something that it doesn't scream, I want to rave most of the the music. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it just pulled in a different direction because of that limitation in the first place. So it just didn't really develop into a, a club genre in the same way that maybe dubstep did. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because I mean, I always sort of think about grime as basically UK hip hop in, in the sort of in where it sits sort of culturally. And... um you know, and prior to grime, like UK hip hop was always a bit of a sort of awkward fit. And, you know, there were, yeah, there were good MCs in isolation, but there was never really a proper scene. And so when grime finally became what it became, it was like, yeah, finally we've got our, we've got our UK hip hop that is our own thing. Right. But that's not a rave scene. Like the difference between UK hip hop and grime at that time, UK hip hop was like, more like American beat style, like New York rap, but with English accents or English voices. And the reason why that never got big was because of distribution. Like they never got supported on the radio or like, I guess some of the stuff was pre one extra. So there was no black music station in that way. So they never really had the reach, but then because grime MCs had the reach of club goers and that distribution of like our voices and sound got hurt. So it was like a new sound that was different to everything else that was happening in, in the world. So that was like an attraction. And then it was on something that was already familiar to people. So it was on effectively garage and people already like garage. So there was yeah. uh, UK hip hop never had that larger ecosystem to plug into. So it, sure. it was always going to be limiting. So I think people always have that, like, Oh like the, yeah. Sometimes be, oh, like the music wasn't good. It's like, it was all right, it was fine, but it was just not um, the distribution of the day didn't work with that music. Whereas you can see people now, the, the UK hip hop in that way is big now. There's, but because we can access people easier than you could, um, you know, in 2001 or 2000 or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there was a, I think there was a lack of distinction as well, which didn't help. I mean, there's, there's definitely exceptions to this. Like someone like Roots Maneuver, I think I was able to kind of carve himself out but that was just, you know, that's not part, well, that my perception of that was that it wasn't really part of a scene. It was just because he was great and everyone just sort of recognised that he was great, you know. But but Grime, as you said, plugs into this existing 
why it's able to sort of build itself on top of this existing thing which had been extremely commercially successful and you know had a lineage going back way further as well so it uh, makes sense absolutely makes sense so anyway tell me about um tell me about starting butters and your sort of direct involvement in in the whole thing yeah so i guess like yeah in the mid noughties like 2005 to 2000 and I was just going to stuff like going to forward, going to like rinse nights, going to um, dirty canvas and other, whatever party was popping up where MCs would be like um, Jamie and Skepta and um, DWE and Footsie and all these kind of acts because I don't know. It was just like, I, like, I enjoyed the music or something to do. But at the same time I was like writing about it on the internet, on internet forums and uh, reading different blogs about the music. Cause he was, who's releasing stuff and listening to, um, the radio shows but most of it wasn't captured online so you know if you just listen to rinse you just listen to the show you download it maybe if you can and there was no track list there was no further information that was it so what i tried to do the original iteration of bars was a blog with me mixing and putting up tunes with um skill skillium my partner and interviewing artists so just giving context to the music um, well, not even just interviewing artists, interviewing the producers in particular because they were the people that in the scene that didn't really have a voice. So the MCs were heard from, but the producers were this kind of background thing that no one really spoke about. So it started there and I did that for like a year and some change um, while I was at university. And then I graduated in uh, university in 2009 and during the credit crunch and kind of had this, you know, moment where I was like, okay, well, I could try and get a job um, which I was failing at. I was going for loads of interviews. Um, or I could just like try on this music thing. I was a, I, I got, had a show on Rinse FM. So I felt like I was already like in the scene. I got like a late night show, 1 to 3 a.m. So that was like a little bit of a motivation to keep going. And then I was like, hey, well, all these producers that are orbiting what we're doing and seem to be enjoying me putting them on the internet and taking pictures of them and all this kind of stuff because not many, there was no Instagram, there was no Twitter. I guess Twitter just started, but the social media thing was so young that someone putting you on their website was still a big deal <laughs> at that time. Yeah. We were like, okay, well, let's turn this into a label. So, you know, my kind of original thesis for the label was like, kind of like hyperdub or temper, but grime. Like that was the the kind right. of, like kind of like good design, like how the temper like records had in the rinse kind of style, give up art um, and all of that look like this really premium presentation. But then with grand music and our culture and MCs and the raves and having a whole ecosystem, but there wasn't really labels at the time. People were just putting out things on little mixtapes and free downloads. So I was trying to put some like value behind the music and, and yeah, really, yeah, build, something for the producers and the people that maybe didn't have a voice yet. And then later on, it became like the raise and, and other whatever things that just caught my attention. Yeah. And you mentioned before about how it sort of gradually turned into a, almost a management agency, right? I guess is a sort of broad way of sort of characterizing it. So like at what point did you start to think along those kind of lines? Like how long did it take of, of of releasing records before it became sort of clear to you that that's how where you wanted to go. I, I don't think it was necessarily how I wanted to go. It's just that was the best service for the artist that I was working with at the time. So there was like probably a point in 2013 where I saw my peer labels, like people that had kind of started at the same time, 
they were their first generation of artists had either like you know blown up or they were at the same level or kind of you know I don't know how to describe it like they were just yeah, they were just there I guess doing their gigs doing just mm. but then they were introducing a whole another wave of, of characters and I was like ah I don't want to do that I, we haven't finished here with Flavor D with Swindle with Royalty with DJ Q like we haven't finished this thing yet so and I didn't have the capacity to I, honestly I didn't have the like ability capacity financial resources to be like hey let's introduce three new people and support their careers and help them develop I thought that would have been a mistake and even though there were like sick people orbiting us and wanted, to, wanted to, me to work with them uh, I couldn't do it I just couldn't yeah I couldn't yeah I could I don't feel like I could have done that or done a good job for them so I was like I, I did try and help people by encouraging them to build their own things so there was more than one buzz there were there was 20 of them that was the I wanted the thing to be like a blueprint for other people to do it that's why I've kind of been open this whole time I'm like no the someone tweeted um that I said to them the internship at butters is not interning at butters <laughs> <laughs> that's what I said to them on the email with them asking for internship like the, the decade ago I was like damn like um, I hope you did I hope you, and they took it in the right way and they took it as like oh you meant just build your own thing and 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 sure. and it was like I, I, I was even surprised at myself I was like wow that's quite clever like to, to just come out of do you think that um, sorry if I could just interrupt you there do you, do you think that because this question just occurred to me as you were saying that um, like my as a kind of observer of the grime scene, I was always really impressed by how sort of um, with a level of sort of uh, of a standard of an entrepreneurial spirit that was with, within it, within you know, from various different people. I mean, like Boy Better Know being the obvious one that really sticks out. Like they, I was super inspired by Jeremy and like, you know, what they did with building the brand and his own kind of like, you know, him sort of building up his kind of, sort of media personality right which was which really caught the imagination of you know, so many people like do you think i mean was that a key feature of grime as a whole do you think yeah i mean with by better in particular i've said it many times like with like jamie and skepto like they are they were my reason for taking it to this level like to taking it seriously once i saw yeah. the, the, the bbk logo on a t-shirt i was like okay cool that can sit next to nike that can sit next to anything i could put that yeah right it's, it was an amazing brand wasn't it amazing piece of branding crazy and it didn't they weren't i used to see, like i used to see jamie at roller city that's like roller skating thing he was just being himself like he made a business or a thing out of being him and that was all it was and we tried to mm. make meaning out of it and in the end like especially as i got to know him i was like being like super authentic has paid off for him. And I think that's what we're all trying to find in our own individual ways while challenging ourselves, while, you know, taking on different uh, opportunities. But maybe what's cut through with, with Jamie in particular is that he's himself and he's an independent thinker and, you know, puts out his work in the way he wants to put, to put out regardless of, you know, where the trend is going. And sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't. And he takes the rough with the smooth and it's a very good example to have. Um, wider than that, though um is that we had that, that was the only option for all of us there was no people like wasn't people offering us deals there weren't management companies there weren't agents and all of this stuff like why would someone ha have an agent if there was no gigs right and a lot of the ambition that this is what people don't realize 15 years ago 10 years ago even the ambition for black music in the uk the height of it would have been like opening for jay-z or something or yeah. um getting a feature with an american 
or um, like that would have been like the peak moment of a UK artist career. Whereas like now people sell out the O2 arena, the, the biggest arena in, in the UK, you know, yeah. 20,000 seats or people will be doing like, you know, big campaigns with, with uh, big companies or having television shows. Like this is like unthinkable 10 years ago. Um, but now yeah. that's like standard. Like it's Grab MC, Big Zoo, it's got a television show, it's got a national radio show, it's got a cookbook and like, you know, doing up Influencer Life and all the, also at the same time putting out Grab Tune. That, that wasn't happening even five years ago maybe. Um, but now we mm. now that's a possible outcome. It changes what I guess like what the proposition of everything is. But at that time when we were starting, no one saw that vision for what, could possibly be if they did then we would have been invested in yeah i mean a lot of it is having having the role models right and having people show you what is possible yeah, yeah. like the previous gen this is no you see like the garage generation they made money selling records and then records stopped selling and then they didn't have like a second wind in terms of like building another business out of it so that generation like they kind of they just because of the change of media they they stagnated and 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 it we couldn't learn from them effectively. And this is what you don't want to happen with this generation of you know, electronic music is that we don't, you know, engage on TikTok or Instagram, whatever it's going to be. And then we lose another generation of talent, basically, because you never really spoke to those people. Yeah, but I don't think people realize that our mentors were no one. There was no mentor because no one had gone from, say like, you know, selling 10,000 vinyl to selling 300 vinyl and then moved into streaming and then had navigated that successfully, not close to us anyway. There were there are people that have done it, like like Shyfex as an example or something like that. But mm. in terms of like the garage, the grime generation, or at least people that were in our ecosystem or local to us, I didn't know anyone like that. So I was learning from just doing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and in all honesty, I think it served the scene pretty well. You know. Because there were, I mean, I think any any scene is, I mean, sort of by definition reliant on the people within it. And there were just obviously a lot of talented people in that scene who made it what it was and made it what it still is, you know, frankly. Because I think it's, you could argue that grime is as big as it's ever been, right? And certainly in some respects. Yeah, it's like this thing that was like a bridge culturally for a lot of music and a lot of like the rap culture in the UK. Like, I don't think yep. any scene is what, scenes meant 10 years ago but yeah it was such a big difference to like getting our voices and faces even and our perspectives out in the mainstream um so much of like you know people like even that opinion on like the perspectives that we we've had in from just from our music has like shaped culture in, in a massive way so yeah oh for sure yeah I mean, do you agree with what I just said there about how that grime might be as you know as big now as it's ever been? Is that is that fair? Mm, no, like not the not the grime that you would know from like then. I just think that I again like the, the the underpinnings of what grime started is in all yeah I guess yeah, all yeah. like modern black music I guess like or modern sure. even like modern electronic music. Um, the the yeah certain things about this it's quite it's quite like a lot of a lot of the way we do things in the uk like in terms of djing the way we 
Like even the way people DJ is influenced by like Grime and Garage. Like it's influenced by EZ, it's influenced by Slimzy, it's influenced by Spyro, it's influenced by like so heavily without even realizing that people do things in certain yeah. ways because of a few human beings. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's quite mad. Like people learned how to DJ from listening to Rinse. People learned how to produce by, you know, buying whatever dubstep records or whatever it's going to be, you know? It's, it has mm-hmm. like really fundamentally changed the music that, that people make and, and want to make and want to be involved in. Even if they didn't end up specifically making grime, that might have been the first thing that the entry point into making stuff. And that's a, that's a big deal. It'll always be a big deal in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. And, and often it's actually quite a small number of people who are sort of disproportionately influential. Like I was, um, last weekend I played at a bass music festival in the, in the US, in the United States. And like quite a lot of, well, the vast majority of the music that gets played at those things now is made by American producers, but it is, it is British music. There's, there's no denying it. You know, it absolutely is like, you can just hear the influence of people like, you know, Scream and, and Distance and, and Jakes and like, you know, these, these, these kinds of people. And, you know, it, it's mad how these things just acquire a life of their own you know, and just make their way through the world, right? Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating, like, even just, like, production tropes, like, so, like, having a, a Jamaican voice on a drum and bass beat, like, now people just think that's what drum and bass yeah. has to be. Like, they just, that's, like, they can't imagine, <laughs> like, a different kind of voice on a drum and bass song because they've heard that trope used so much that, you know, even if you're not, familiar like not engaged or familiar with those cultures that's what you would go to because that's what would sound right to you it's like fascinating absolutely yeah the aim and break yeah like all of yeah, that man. stuff it's, it's, it's crazy i love it <laughs> totally so yeah final question man what have you got coming up um so i'm kind of developing this um this yellow squares project to just be as from my brain onto the computer as possible in any possible medium that i can create in so music um, you know, art, video, um, then bring that into live events. Um, so I'll do some in conversations with people um, in real life. Um, and yeah, just try and not like bog, my, bog myself down in any format too much, just experiment and have fun with it. Um, ask, you know, good questions. Um, I spend a lot of time speaking to artists and businesses about, you know, the next, because not generation but the next wave of what we're doing why are we working on the stuff that we're working on is are we putting our resources and and focus in the right places um which takes up a, not takes up a lot of time but is a lot of my work now um it's kind of like it sounds like a shit word like consultancy but that's kind of what it yeah yeah it makes sense um yeah. but, I, but i really enjoy that because i get all these different perspectives and obviously it feeds into the writing work too and um really like so much of the effort in the last two years was getting everyone's artist business into not everyone but the artists I work with artist business into a good space or a sustainable space and um, feel like I've had that breakthrough over the last month or so where I feel a bit more confident in that <laughs> but you know no one knows what's going to happen next right um, so I was just trying to stay on my toes and um, yeah kind of motivate the people that I work with and and vice versa like I get I get as much energy back from them as they give to me so you should see that in many forms so other music that I'm adjacent to and yeah 
it, it doesn't it doesn't sound like a one one line answer but <laughs> i wasn't expecting yeah, that. <laughs> many things all the time and um again just trying to throw the fear out of the window maybe the if we ever have a conversation on this pod again, I would be a billion followers up on TikTok or something crazy. <laughs> well, listen, man, I think you're doing great work and I'm really, I really appreciate you coming on the show. So yeah, thanks. It's been, been great. Thank you for having me. Bro. Yeah, that was Elijah. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Apologies for the slight technical issues with some of the audio there. As I mentioned at the top, it was a little bit of a challenge getting this together, but I think most of it sounded okay. And the content of the conversation, which is obviously the important bit, was super interesting to me. It was great to be able to dig into his thinking on some of the issues that he talked about on his Yellow Squares project, as well as the grime history stuff, which I find super interesting, super fascinating. In fact, it was great to get a good description of the Notting Hill Carnival, which I haven't been to for years, actually. I used to be quite a regular there, but I haven't been down there for, for a long time now. So, so yeah, just an extraordinarily important part of the musical history of London and the musical present of London, actually. It's just, um yeah, can't overstate how important that thing is to the London music scene. So uh, just a reminder, again, if you want to support the show, you can do so directly via Patreon, patreon.com slash official. It's a couple of different options on there. So yeah, get over there if you're interested in giving us money to help produce the show each week. It does cost money to do it. So be extremely grateful if you did that. If you can't, if you don't want to, that's also cool. Five-star rating wherever you're listening to this would be much appreciated. Listen to the Spotify playlist. Follow it as well. And join us in the Discord. There's a private area of Discord if you're a Patreon member, but you can get into the regular thing regardless. So hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord is the place to be. And um, yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening. I'll be back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.